0: Thanks again, uh, worship team, and just, uh, just choosing songs that point us to Christ, and then as we reflected in communion, uh, the grace and the forgiveness and of sins, the, this great exchange uh, that we have that's found abundantly in Christ. Um, praise God. Praise God. This morning, will you take your Bibles with me, please, to... The book of Matthew, and this is where we'll begin today, Matthew 16, verse 13 to 20. will be our scripture reading, and we'll start from here, uh, we'll launch off from here and look at a lot of other passages this morning in our, in our, um, in our final sermon, on the, our Church 101 series. Matthew 16, verse 13 through 20. Matthew 16, 13 to 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea, Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. that they shall tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for pointing us to Christ, reminding us of the great salvation, the great exchange that we have through faith in him. We thank you for your extravagant love, your abundant grace reflected in the sending of your son to die on the cross for our sins, and Father, we thank you and praise you. We're overwhelmed, in fact, by this truth because it's not just one sin or two sins or uh, the sins of this year, but the sins, all our sins, from past to the present and to the future. Lord, we, we. We know that we are not worthy of this. We do not deserve it. We can never earn it. But Lord, we thank you that. Christ gave his life for us. And even as we look to uh, our study this morning, we thank you that Christ promises to build his church, that all we need is Christ. Father, we pray that we would grow in our love and understanding of who Christ is this morning, that you would strengthen our conviction that all we need is Christ. To build this church. And Father, we pray that as we grow in, in our understanding of who Christ is, may you make us into effective disciple makers of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray these things for your glory, that your name might be magnified in our world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, uh, we're completing our Church 101 series. I thought I would do one more. I was debating whether I would leave it in or not. I had planned to do it, and so then I planned to take it out, and then I wavered, and I'm double-minded. I I brought it back in. I said, oh, this is good. This is good. That's because it's something that, (laughs) yesterday we had our ministry leaders meeting, and I had a chance to share these uh, building blocks. In fact, these are uh, something that we have taught before, but I thought that they're so fundamental, they're so important that we understand uh, these building blocks and these that this these the answer uh, our study this morning that I wanted to preach it again and though uh, it's something that's one I preached in four sermons before uh, we're gonna preach it in one today we've been looking at church 101 and that's we've been looking at what are the essential basic principles of the church right what do we need to understand about church and what do we need to apply as we apply those principles to life in the church I know especially for those of you who have been new to the church if you haven't been with us for uh you know too too long maybe five years or less or even ten years or less i hope that these uh, this church one-on-one series has been helpful for you to see uh, where are where is this church heading towards what is our vision what's our purpose or what is our direction because uh the, the these principles help guide us in all that we do in the christian life or, or all that we do as a church body uh we just want to do a quick review a refresher for us if you will uh Number one, we looked at first in our first week. What is the church's purpose? And I'm not going to even gonna ask you to tell me the answer anymore because it's such a Sunday school answer. You already know. You were going to say disciple making, right? We're making disciples. That that's the purpose of the church. The Great Commission calls us to go therefore into all the world and to make disciples of all the nations, right? Go and so this principle of making disciples of Jesus Christ to make uh, to make followers of Christ, learners of Christ, to to bring people to a saving knowledge of Christ, and then that they would grow in sanctification in Christ. And that's our purpose. That's why we exist. We looked at second, our second subject, was how does the church go about fulfilling this purpose? Or what's the substance? What's the essence of this ministry? What does it look like for the most part, primarily? And we answered that it's through speaking the word of God in the power of God. That when we make disciples, at, at its very heart is that we speak truth to one another, speak the truths of Christ to one another in Christ's the strength that Christ gives us, uh, certainly. We cannot do it in our own strength. We need to speak truth. And even yesterday, I thought we, I mentioned it to our ministry leaders. If we all lived perfect Christian lives, if we all were instantly when we are saved, we were all perfectly glorified and sanctified. Now, if we lived such a perfect life on earth, but we never opened our mouths, would we be able to make disciples? No, we wouldn't. Because it requires the proclamation of the good news, the word of God. Anyways, we, then we looked at last, last week, uh, our pastor Alton preached uh, a, a something that was very important, and I, I've co- phrased this as, what is the church's central message? What is at the heart of our message of the word of God that, that we preach? And you and the answer was, the gospel. But I had to add to it, because the, the, as we looked at that study, we call, it's also called the Gospel of Grace. I was even. When I was listening to last week's message. I was overwhelmed by the amazing, abundant grace of God towards us, that He shows. He showers us with such grace that He gives us a salvation that we don't deserve, like those eleventh-hour workers. You know, and that is even if, and, and so we preach a gospel that is different from the good, the the other religions of the world. That we tell people that salvation is by. Grace. It's by not by any works that we do. The other religions of the world, it's all about doing. But the religion of Christ is about done, what it's already done on the cross. We come to the, then our fourth subject that we want to address today, today's subject. And then we're going to answer the question what makes a church then effective in fulfilling her purpose? Uh, like, <clears throat> we think about baseball players, and we think about what makes them effective uh, baseball t- players. We say, we thought about how many tools do they have, right? They got five tools. And that's the best kind of uh, baseball player. It makes them an effective, an effective baseball player. Uh, you know, we're all thinking about baseball today since we're on that subject. Uh, and so the Bible tells us what makes the church effective in making disciples. Not five tools, but today we're going to look at four building blocks. Four building blocks, four for requirements that every church has, to, that the that church requires, and makes them, as we have these requirements, it makes us effective in making disciples. Understanding the answers, in fact, to this question, and, ins- will, and ensuring that these requirements are found in this church. So it's not enough just to know, right? We're talking about this is, this is, this is a theoretical kind of class, but that theory must be applied, it must be applied to church life. As we apply these principles to our life, these requirements, make sure that they're found in the church, in every ministry in the church, then it helps us to fulfill uh, our purpose to make disciples. I've called this the building blocks of SBC on past times. I was going to ask you, raise your hands. How many of you even remember were here in that workshop that I taught at a retreat back in 2004 entitled The Building Blocks of SFBC? Wow, two of you. Okay, three of you. And if you, ma- if you know them, you-, you can be excused since you've already, you have already know that you mastered them. So the three of you, that's amazing. Uh, but the rest of you, I was thinking, wow, a lot of people haven't been here as early as 2004. So it's kind of neat to have all of you here and to, to kind of go through it again. But it's essentially what the Bible teaches. It's, I've, We put together just a study. If you kind of took the word building and you, as applied to the church or to the verb to build, and you look for all the the terms in the, in the New Testament where the church is a building and how it's to be built up, and you kind of summarize those, all those passages into four categories or summarize them, we would find that they fall under four categories, four building blocks, is called, or building materials is another way of saying it. And so today we're going to look at this broad kind of subject of what do we need, what are the requirements, what are the building materials, building blocks that we need to build up this church to make us effective. In order to build an effective, disciple-making church, then, the blueprints call for four building blocks, and that's our, where we'll be, we're going to spend this morning. Uh, number one, then, we, we look at uh, our first building block is found in Matthew 16, verse 13 to 20, and that is the building block of Christ. This is the most important building block. In fact, it's the, the primary building block, we might say. Uh, you, you can... If we are going to build a disciple-making church of Jesus Christ, then Christ must be found in every part of this building. You know, it ha- He has to be in every person, in every member of the body. He has to be in every program, in every ministry of this church, in every event that we do. Christ must be found within, is a, a part of what we do. Matthew 16, verse 13 to 20 that we look at, which we read in our scripture reading, Tells us and teaches us why Christ is so important for the building up of the church. Many people in those days wondered who Jesus was. He was speaking with great authority. He did many powerful and wonderful things. And so as we read in Scripture reading, there was many different answers for who Jesus was. But in verse 15, Jesus asked, asked the question of his disciples. Who do you say that I am? And that's a question that only Jesus asked disciples, but it's an important question for everyone to answer. If that's a question that Jesus was asking you, who do you say that I am? It's not who does Pastor Henry says that I am, but who do you say that I am? The important question for you is, who do you say that Jesus is? Who is Jesus Christ? The right understanding of this question is so important, not only for the building of the church, but it's important for your soul. It's absolutely important for your eternal life. We talked about, and just here, thinking about all that Christ is, all that he's done today. And that, understanding who that is, and I, I hope you, you, many of you have already understood who Christ is, that you would make sure that that you understand who he is, that you have recognized him and you believed upon him. But Jesus asks this question of his disciples, and Peter, Simon Peter asked, answers the question in verse 16. And he gives this great answer. Uh, it is an A-plus answer. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter correctly acknowledges who Jesus is, that he was the Christ. That means he was the Messiah. He's the one that the, all the Old Testament scriptures pointed to. It's all, it's, he's the one whom all the Israelites had been longing for, looking for, the, the one who would be the son of David, the one who would be the, the seed of Abraham, the one who would, come, who would be the prophet, the king, the, the priest who would reign over them the one who would bring salvation to Israel. And they did not know yet, but he would bring salvation to the world beyond. He was the Messiah, the anointed one. But not what's more, Peter acknowledged not only Jesus as the Christ, but Jesus as the, as the son of God. That's in essence based saying that Jesus is God. The son, the phrase the son indicates the one who shares the, the same nature as her, his, her, his father. So to say he's the son of the living God is to be one in nature with the living god that jesus is the living god peter's confession of jesus then as the messiah as well as as the son of god was the absolute truth and this is the the confession of peter jesus would commend jesus would commend peter on his on <coughs> On this, uh, on this recognition in verse 17. Blessed are you, he says in verse 17. I, I don't have it up there, but you look in your Bibles. Blessed are you, Simon of Rajona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And what stands out in verse 17 tells us that Peter did not figure this out on his own. He didn't study and look at all, compare all the religions, and then realize who Jesus is. This is something that, he, that was revealed to him by his Father in heaven. God is the one who gives understanding of who Jesus is and, and as well as the faith to believe in him. See, this confession of Jesus Christ is what each and every member of this church needs to have. And yet, at the same time, we realize that none of us come to this recognition by our own. But it's, some, it's a recognition that God the Father brings into us. It's, we realize that God is sovereign in salvation, that he reveals who Jesus is to us. Christ isn't your buddy or your co-pilot. Christ is the Lord our Savior, the Son of God, and he deserves our service, our worship, our faith, our belief in our, in our submission. And if you, don't, if you are hearing, and this is the most important truth, that if you are hearing, you don't understand Jesus rightly for who he is. And if you don't know Christ, that is, if you don't know who he is and you haven't believed upon him, because understanding rightly who Christ is leads you to believe in him then you can't be involved in this church in making disciples of Christ. We need people who are Christians, followers of Christ. that's the most important of all, to be disciple makers. Verse 18, Jesus says, though, he goes on. He says, I will also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. This verse alone I, I think could be a, the whole sermon by itself, but I just want to point out three things of importance. Number one, here we look at this verse, we look, uh, particularly the phrase "Upon this rock I will build my church," and we know that number one, Jesus teaches us that the church belongs to Him. That the church belongs to Christ. It doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to you. Uh, oftentimes we say we put our uh, our name in front of the church. That's my church. Your your church. That's uh, you know uh, somebody's church. And we understand what we mean, but it really, whose church does this belong to? This is Christ's church. He he is my church, he says. Number two, we learn also that Christ is the one who builds his church. Even as we go about evangelizing, which we are called to do, even as we go about edifying the saints, which we are called to do, it's our responsibility, that we must remember that it is Christ who is working in us to build his church. Christ empowers us to do so. It's his power, according to Colossians 1, uh, 28, 29, that his power that works mightily within us. Thirdly, though, I want to point out this, and I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this. That he, but the point here, I want to emphasize that Jesus himself promises to build the church upon himself. Now, what does that mean exactly? But Jesus promised to build his church. I think we get that. But he's going to say, I will build my church. But secondly, he says he promised to build his church upon himself. What does that mean? Upon, and upon, The phrase says, upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, there are two kind of main interpretation, interpretations of this phrase, upon this rock. What does this rock refer to? But Jesus here, when he speaks these words, he's using a kind of a play on words. He uses two different words that are similar in sound but are different in meaning. Peter, his name Peter is Petras, Petras, and he is, means a little stone. His name means a little stone or a pebble. But when Jesus used the word for the rock, he uses a word that sounds similar. It's Petra. Petra is a large rock, a foundational rock, in fact. A large cliff could be considered a, 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 a Petra. And so Jesus was comparing Petras with Petra. You're Peter, Petra's little rock, but I will, build this, I will build this church upon this rock, Petra. The two different words that Jesus uses tells us there's an intentional differentiation between what he's building the church on. And there are some, uh, primarily from the Roman Catholic Church tradition, who believes that this rock is Peter. But the fact that he, Jesus uses two different words tells us that he's impending something different. That he's tending to make a, a distinction between what is pe- what, who Peter is and upon what is this rock that he's building. The biblical view... The right, correct interpretation of this is that this rock refers, of course, to Jesus Christ. Or more specifically, the rock. this rock is the confession of who Christ is. This confession that Peter acknowledges who Jesus is. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. A right confession of who Jesus is. Everyone who confesses Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior receives eternal life and becomes a disciple of Christ. There is no other way to become a part of Jesus' church. It's not by giving or by serving or by filling out an application or or by doing any good works. It's by believing in Christ. And that's why when we even talk about membership in the local church, our primary uh, uh, requirement that we ask of everyone who joins this local church is that, are you a believer in Christ? Have you come to a a right acknowledgement who Jesus is and what he's done for you? Christ promises to build his church upon himself. And Jesus Christ has been building his church throughout the ages and he has been building SFBC for our fifth, past 50 years upon this common confession that every Christian shares that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. No matter who you are, the way of salvation is the same for all. This church must be and it has been and will always be built upon Christ. In fact, in we have some scriptures gives other cross references that emphasize this truth in Ephesians 2:20 Jesus is described as the cornerstone in the building in building things there was always a cornerstone one that would the first rock that would establish all the other rocks that would be laid in its foundation Jesus is that cornerstone 1 Corinthians 3:11 Jesus called the foundation and we sung we had a great just appreciated the the reading of that the hymn in the beginning of our of our service to remind us that Jesus Christ is our foundation upon which the church is built, is our only foundation. 1 Corinthians 3.11 brings us out. You know, a foundation is so important because a foundation determines what kind of building you will build or you can build. You know, if your foundation is just the, the earth, you can probably build a doghouse on it, right? It'll stand, right? Or a cat house. though they won't live in it. You put a, you know, a kind of a, a cement, a, a concrete slab, you know, that's good at big enough, you could probably build a house on it. Most of our houses probably built, my house is built on a concrete slab. But if you have a, de- build a, a deep, deep hole, and you kind of go around downtown, sometimes you see them building gi- gigantic deep holes in the ground, and they just like, man, why are they, not they supposed to build something up? Why are they building something far down? Why are they going so far down? Right? It doesn't make no sense that they're building some secret kind of CIA things down there. That's <laughs> what I think, but no, <laughs> Okay. Strike that from the (laughs) corner. Because the foundation, the deeper the foundation, the bigger the building, right? We understand that. That kind of foundation. So if your foundation is Christ, you're going to be able to build a church of Christ. If Christ's character, Christ's teaching, Christ's work is reflected in every person, in every ministry of this church, if we are preaching Christ, imitating Christ, talking of Christ, serving Christ, then Christ will build his church through us upon himself. That's our first building block. It's the most important building block. If we get to nothing else this day, run out of time, that's what you need to remember. We build the church. Christ builds his church upon himself. Number two, the second building block, the first building block leads to the second. If we, Christ is going to build his church, then it naturally follows that we're going to need his, the Bible, the word of Christ, the word of God that tells us about Christ. It tells us of who he is and what he's teach, what he has taught, what he teaches. In Acts chapter twenty, verse twenty-five to thirty-two, there's this is kind of uh, narrative that explains about how Paul, after at the end of his third missionary journey, goes ret- is returning to Jerusalem, and he stops by in Miletus, and he calls for the elders of Ephesus to come to him, and as he meets with them, he disc- re- he gives them from his sort of final words of encouragement, but he primarily conveys to them his faith. In- or encourage them to put their trust in God and His Word. Verses, verse 27, Paul reminds them that what he had spent his time doing for three years among them he says, I had preached to you the whole counsel of God. <laughs> he didn't just say, Well, I just preached to you the gospel, how to become a Christian. He says, I preached you the whole counsel, the whole plan of God, the purposes and plans of God, the will of God. I taught you not only how to be saved, but then how to be sanctified. Not just to be a believer in Christ, but to be a follower of Christ. He taught them to be disciples of Christ. And he did that through teaching the whole counsel of God in verse 27. Verse 28 to 31, Paul had a serious warning, though. Paul warned the elders of the danger of wolves from without the church and as well as from within. He told them to be on guard, to be on the alert for themselves as well as for the flock. Why? Because of the reality of wolves. Men who would come in and speak perverse, not sexually perverse, but biblically perverse. They would twist the scriptures, misleading, misinterpreting, and so that they would then lead astray the flock. And wherever, in, in, uh, throughout the church history, wherever there are sheep, there are always those that prey on the sheep. It's true at Ephesus, it's true in San Francisco, and our leaders, leaders of this church must constantly be vigilant to guard not only our own lives, to make sure that we are, do not become wolves, but that we need to guard against wolves who may come in, who would pervert the teachings of the scriptures to draw people to themselves. You now, of course, when I think about this, I always like to think, you know, it's, I wish every wolf when they come in would just say, hey, I'm a wolf, Right? It's to be make life easy. It's a hard task to, as a shepherd to, to guard against wolves and to know, is this a person a wolf or is this actually just a, a sheep that's really hurt? You know, it's a fine line between the two. You just, you're praying to, to be discerning because depending on who, if they're a wolf or, or, or just a hurt sheep, you treat them a little differently. If it's a wolf, you just chase them away. So what can be done then? How do we how do we guard against wolves? And this and this is the point that we need to understand. Paul entrusts and Paul communicates this to the elders in verse thirty two. He says, "And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified." Paul entrusts the Ephesian elders and the church in their charge to God and to the Word of His grace. That is, that he tells them, you know, you did, as the wolves come in, you need to trust in God. You need to look to His Word, and you need there from within you will find what you need to discern, to protect the flock, and to continue to shepherd the flock of God that He's placed you among. Omnipotent God has revealed his truth in his word. His word is powerful enough to guard, to guard us from, to to guard us from the wolves, but also to build up this church, to build up the church as it ought to be. Paul recognizes here in this phrase just that the word of God is powerful. It says this to the word of his grace, which is able, that word is from which we get the term dynamite. It's dynamic kind of power. It's a capable power. It's not only capable, but it's able to build you up. It's continually able to make you stronger, make you sturdier, make you stabler in your faith. And then not only that, it gives us the inheritance. It ensures that we receive the inheritance of eternal life, life with Christ among all those who are being sanctified. This book reveals God's grace towards mankind through his son. It has the power to build this church up. It has the power to give salvation. You know, when we think of power, things that are powerful, when we think about organizations, what makes an organization power, powerful? And when we look at the world, sometimes we look at, wow, that's a powerful company because they got a beautiful building. You know, we think about Apple and the spaceship that they're building out there. Think wow, they, that's power. Sometimes we think about a, an organization is powerful because they have a lot of money, or they have properties. That's not how it is with the church. So now, as we think a a, a a corporation or a company or, or an organization is powerful because of the, the variety of programs they have. Look, all oh, they got programs for all ages. They have programs for every single need in my life. They have a lot of different op, uh, services that they provide. And we hope that churches could do that, but no church can provide all those programs. That's not where the power is at. Where is the power? It's in God and his word. It's in the gospel, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And because of this, it's important for us as a church to make sure that we are in his word that we understand that God and Bible have a load and have the power of the church, that we are men and women who are filled with the word of Christ, that he richly indwells us so that we then may speak those truths into others' lives, that we would enable us to build up the church of Jesus Christ. I think that's also so helpful because the Bible is our guide between what is biblical and what is non-biblical. Uh, we were having questions yesterday, even in our ministry leaders' meeting. I, one question, really, I, I loved the question because it made us look at what we do. There are certain things that we do in this church, and some are just clearly biblical. But this was, it was a non-biblical thing. And we looked at it, and, and uh, hopefully we, we, all under, we understood that. We realized that if this thing is not in the Bible, then, yes, we can do it. There's nothing wrong with doing something that's non-biblical. It's, there's grace. There's liberty to do so. But we have the wisdom to say, well, if we want to change it, we can't. It's okay to change. The church is always changing, so the Bible see, gives us that guide from what we must do, what we can do, and what we ought not to do. Is that's how this is how the Bible builds up the Church of Christ. But we move on to our third building block, and that is the family, the family of God. But I call, we call this the body of Christ. The church needs, and listen to this: the church needs the church family. In order to build up the church. Can okay, you like that phrase? The church needs the church family in order to build up the church. It's sort of like saying you need the team in order to build up the team, to have a team. Now, we all know that, of course, though, what I like to particular point out is that we all know that teams, you may have a team, but they don't play like a team, right? They all, each individuals still looking out for their own individual kind of uh, stats. And so they don't play like a team. And so that, that team becomes ineffective. It's just as possible to have a church family that doesn't function like a church family, that we don't operate. We can each be looking out for our own interests, for instance. And when that happens, the church then becomes weak. We become unhealthy, and we don't become effective in making disciples. So what the church needs then is not merely the presence of a church We have a church This is our church family. You are my church family, and I'm yours. But we need the proper functioning of a church family. We need the church family, but we need to properly function. And Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15 to 16, speaks to the importance of the proper functioning of the members of the church body, the church family, which leads towards the building up of the church. Let's just read the text. Ephesians 4, 15 to 16. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted together and held together, by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. You see, that last phrase is important. That whatever all that's taking place in verse 15 and 16 results in the building up of itself, that is, the body of Christ, in love. The so the body of Christ builds up itself. Yes, Christ builds the church, but the body of Christ, which belongs to Christ, is part of Christ, Builds itself up as well. How does the body of Christ do this? How does it build itself up itself in love? Well, it does this through three activities we find here in this passage. Uh, there are more, but we could we're just gonna point out three. There are these three uh, three activities that the body of Christ is called to do. Number one, it's it's our communication with the family. Verse 15. Paul emphasizes, he writes, but speaking the truth in love, we ought to grow up in all aspects into him. We've already looked at this under uh, what is the substance of ministry. How does the church go about building making disciples? Through speaking the truth. So we get, we get this. When we speak God's word to one another, we build up the church. Number two, though, is not only through communication with the family, but it's also through our connection with the family. Now, we need connection with the family. Verse 15 tells us, or <laughs> verse 16, I'm sorry, Paul writes, from whom, speaking of Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. See, the whole body of Christ is fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. It's a picture of how the body is connected together. Our bodies, we could divide into different parts, but they're all connected by different ways, by joints, by uh, different ligaments in our body. uh, Connect this body. And we need to be connected, uh, quite obviously, in order for our body to function well, and we need this as a church. We need to be connected within with one another, in order to grow, in order to build up this church. You see, it's not if you're a believer in Christ. It's not whether or really whether you are connected, but rather how well you're connected. By the very fact that you have Christ, there's that connection that you have with the body of Christ. We're all because we're all under His headship. The heat our head. But there are different levels in which we're connecting to the church. But the more we, the more we, connect, we are connected to the body, the better. If you're only coming to Sunday worship, for instance, you're not participating, you don't, you're not connecting to any fellowship, Bible study, Sunday school, I encourage you to be more connected with the body. You would benefit. Not only you would benefit from this connection, but we as a body of Christ would be, can benefit from this connection that we have in those smaller groups in the church, and we're connected with other believers within the body, we're not only to better know one another and can be mutually encouraged, but we can also better effectively serve one another as well. And that leads to our third activity, which I want to spend uh, some time on. And that is verse 16, where Paul continues. He says, from whom the whole body, being fit and held together by whatever joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part. See, not only are we connected, it's, but we're Properly working, uh, and I've I've learned this very much, and through my PT that I've been receiving recently, you know, I, my muscles are connected, but they're not working. Some of them aren't working well. In fact, when one my, of my muscles, like here, is not working well, it actually affects this muscle here. I've been learning, and I, I get pain here because oh, it's not because of this muscle particularly, but it's because this muscle here or this this uh, you know vertebrae here. Okay, I'm not a medical doctor, but you know, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> When one part of my body is not working, it affects the other parts of my body that are near me. It's so profound. Though it's so obvious. It's right before us. That's how the body of Christ works. Each and every member of the church family has been given a function, a gift, spiritual gift even. We're given even tasks, responsibilities within the church body. And God gives us these gifts so that we might serve one another. Serve in the body. To be connected and to use our gifts to make a contribution to the family of God. If you aren't using your gift, then the Bible says our body will, will not function as it ought because it's missing your contribution. Christ builds his church through the members of his body, through you and me communicating his truths, being connected to one another, the body of Christ, and contributing through our spiritual gifts in service of one another. Paul would write elsewhere in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. The well, last and final building block and is the building block of servant leaders, servants of Christ. For the building of this church, SFBC needs three qualities of her servant leaders. I shared these with our ministry leaders yesterday. Uh, I'll kind of go through them a little more quickly today. Number one, servant leaders use their ability to build up the church. Ephesians 4.11-12 talks about how God, uh, Christ, gave to the church gifted men, apostles, prophets, uh, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. He gives gifts, not only, and gifted who are, and as well as gifted men to the church, for the building up of the body of Christ. They, they may equip the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. That's Ephesians 4.12. But secondly, God gives servant leaders, leaders to the church who will use their authority to build up and not tear down? This, we find this reference in 2 Corinthians ten eight, 2 Corinthians thirteen ten. See, it's so easy to let leadership get to one hand, get to get to get to our heads, to think that we're more important or we're better or, or we have some kind of uh, power to to that uh, to do whatever we wish. And sometimes, oftentimes, we hear too many complaints about church that for that pastor, it was all about his way or the highway. That ought not to be for leaders and the servants, servant leaders of Christ's church. But thirdly, servant leaders of Christ that we need to build, that are going to be effective in building up the church, recognize their accountability to God. It all begins here that we remember who we're serving, that we're not the Lord, we're not the Master. God is our Master, God is our Lord. And in 1 Corinthians 3 5 through 9, there's this passage where Paul is described, talking about. The division that was going on in the church in Corinth. They were being split. Some were saying, I'm Apollos. I follow Peter. I'm I'm, I'm Paul. And he reminds them that, no, don't be like that. Who are these people? He says, of Christian 3 5, we are simply servants. We're servants. We're diakonas. We're not people, anything special. We're not lords. We're not the masters of of the church. So it begs the question who is their master? The master, of course, is God. In the verses that follow, 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 9, the emphasis uh, using is upon who their master is, that it's God, through the analogy of agriculture. In verse 6, Paul tells how he did the planting and Paul also did the watering, but who was causing the growth? God. In verse 7, Paul points out that, uh, you know, the one who plants, the one who waters is, is not anything. It's really nothing. But who is everything? It's God who causes the growth. He's everything. God is their master. God causes the growth. And then in verse 8, we learn that their accountability is to God. He tells us each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Who are they going to reward it from? The landowner. We looked at that last week. That's God. God will reward them. Every leader in God's church is is first and foremost a servant of the Lord of God. Paul brings this home then in verse 9, which I just want to put up here. He says, for why, for, why did I say all these? For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field. You are God's building. He's talking about the church, the church of Corinth. You are God's building. You're God's, if we talk about a building metaphor. We, he used the agricultural metaphor. He says, you're God's field. That is, you're a field that belongs to God. You're a building that belongs to God. And when we go back to the, the first part, of verse 9, it says, we are fellow workers, Paul's myself, Peter, all the other apostles, James, John, we are simply fellow workers. We're servants, and we answer to God. We belong to God. Though God uses servant leaders to build his church, the church and the servant leaders themselves must never forget that we are fellow servants of God, that we are not the leaders of this church. Ultimately, Christ is the leader of this church. There are three applications of this principle. As servants, we, we seek we then ought to seek to do the will of our master. Right, ministry leaders, we seek to do the will of our master, not our own will. We make decisions. We want to make sure that this is God's will. As fellow servants, we decide we need to work together. We're fellow workers, not against one another. So easy. I I wish I could have told our ministry leaders this, but it's so easy. Just like in ministry among pastors, jealousy is a it's a very easy sin to fall into. So, say, oh, why is that pastor succeeding? But it happens in the church. Why is that ministry flourishing and ours is not? You say, oh, you may be, you know, I know I have to be happy for them, but why is my little, you know, group kind of, you know, just, oh, there's only three of us. You kind of feel that. It's, oh, man, there's jealousy and envy. But we need to, when we work together, we should be happy when the other parts of our body are flourishing, thriving. And thirdly, as servants of God, we need to serve with an attitude of humility. Humility is so important. The, the temptation of pride is so real. I, I feel it in myself. I feel it. I, and I know that it's, it's a, always a present danger for us to think that. And so constantly remind ourselves that we are servants of Christ. We're servants of God. And we need to serve with humility, humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Well, these are our building blocks. These are the building materials that we need to build up San Francisco Bible Church. What makes the church effective in fulfilling our purpose? These four building blocks. We need servant leaders, a family of God, the Bible, and Christ. To the extent that these building blocks are utilized within this church, to the, now if you are a ministry leader, think about it, Are these to the extent that these, these building blocks exist in your ministry, you will or we will become an effective disciple-making church. Christ will build his church through himself, his word, his body, and his servants. And as Jesus says, even the gates of Hades will not overcome it. That this is so certain uh, to build the church is that even death itself will not overcome. The death, we we don't only have to fear death, because Christ will build his church upon himself, his word, his body, and his servants. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time to go over these building blocks. We pray that you would continue to build SFEC upon Christ, upon his word, upon his, the members of his body functioning as they ought, and upon the servant leaders whom you place among us to equip the body to serve with humility, recognizing their accountability to you. And Lord, as we make sure and ensure that these building blocks are existing in the body, may may you fulfill the promise of Christ to build up San Francisco Bible Church, to build up this church to further your kingdom so that we might be effective disciple makers for Christ, of Christ. Lord, this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah. God bless you this week. As you're dismissed, please exhale to my left and your right. Uh, have a wonderful week.